You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Take your Bibles, would you, and join me. I'm going to be all over the place, I guess. So let's start in Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel, Old Testament. Find Matthew, go backwards just a bit. You'll find Ezekiel chapter 16. I uh, find it interesting that when you plan something, this is a uh, some thoughts I wanted to share today. And obviously, I did not talk to uh, the worship team. They sang songs that really lead right up to this text. And uh, yesterday at the board meeting, I read this to our, our, uh, our, our board at our meeting to open up the meeting, just a sharing. And really this came out of my devotions, but I thought this morning it would be appropriate to begin with this as we uh, kind of look at an idea today. <clears throat> Let me read this to us, starting at verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. Now, we know that, this, just to, to remind us as we dive into this, that uh, Israel had been in great sin. They were in the process of judgment. And uh, here's the Lord God expressing to Israel his feelings about them. And he wants to express to them how much he has demonstrated his love for them. So as we read this, that's uh, the text that we're looking at. And say to them, verse verse 3, say to them, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field, when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked uh, naked and, and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. 
I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Any of you who are longing to have a, a nose a deal or a ring or whatever, I see God even permits it. I just thought I'd throw that out for some of you parents who struggle with this stuff. <laughs> wow, look out. Verse 13, thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was a fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. And you ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded in royalty. Your fame went out among the nations before of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Basically, in context, he's saying, You were absolutely, hopelessly born and unacceptable, unworthy, uh, worthless in the sense of that. And uh, you were uh, absolutely uh, by yourself, lost and hopeless. Uh, No one cared. No one is going to help you. You were unhelpable. Uh, You're someone who is absolutely isolated. And I came along and saw you in your absolute worthlessness. And I gave you worth and value because out of my grace, I decided to love you. It's an amazing reminder to us that we think we're something. And as God looks at us and sees us in sin... He sees the real person who we are in our sin, in our grotesque rebelliousness to God. He sees us, but he walks past and sees that we are hopeless. And he says, I choose to lift you up, love you, dress you, cleanse you, save you, and and give you all that I have to share with you to make you beautiful. It's, It's such an amazing Statement, but look at verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame. Verse 16, you took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Uh, 17, you also have taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. That's not a nice thing, by the way. It's very lewd. He goes on, verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them, that is to the high places, to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? Verse 23 says, Then it was so after all your wickedness, woe, Woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself at every street. He goes on, verse 27 says, Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you. The daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Can you imagine that? The world was ashamed of the behavior of Israel? After all the grace and goodness that he expressed to them, this is what they did, and this is why God was unleashing a judgment against them. Now, that's not our text this morning, but that introduces our text. I want you to go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
just a nice little introduction to our text, and so I thought you'd want to go over here and hopefully be a little more encouraged. As Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and you know the Corinthians are notorious for having issues and struggles and problems, and as Paul's dealing with them, especially in 2 Corinthians, where in the second letter he's much more personal, much more intimate in his writing, he says to them at chapter 6, verse 1, We then, as workers together with him, that is Christ, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That text I read this morning was to just remind us of how much God loves us and how worthless we are without him, how hopeless life is without him. And obviously that means every one of us here have been a recipient of God's grace in some way. Even if you don't have a relationship with Christ today, you don't know him personally, you're still a recipient of his grace And we're going to see that. But he has poured his grace out to all of us. And some of us have responded in the right way. Others of us have not. And I want to look at that this morning. He he takes a verse out of Isaiah 49 and says, For he says, verse 2, For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. It's just, again, the the theme of grace. As God has spoken uh, in, in a proper time, we have heard him we've chosen to hear him and in the day of salvation he has helped us as we've called on him so he says behold now is the accepted time behold now is the day of salvation he's reminding us that when you hear grace when you hear grace calling out to you or when you see grace operating before you and you recognize that the grace is happening around me that this is the time to respond if today you hear Uh, a tug at your heart from Christ through his word tugging on your heart. This is the time to respond. It may not come again. That's what he's saying. And then he adds this in verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And so we're going to go on and look at this uh, this morning. But this idea of grace. And uh, when he says do not receive grace in vain, I want to just pause for a second and consider how uh, we oftentimes receive grace in, in a vain uh, uh, response. Several ways. Let me give you some of these. Uh, number one is insulting God's grace. Some insult his grace, and that's what we just read out of Ezekiel. Uh, the response to what he's done for us to insult him by literally going against what he has offered us and done for us and turning it all around and, and throwing it back in God's face and saying uh, the very opposite of what it means to live for God. That, that, that's that, that's insulting him in the, in the greatest way. When you know what grace is and then you just say, not only do I not want it, I'm going to pervert it. Uh, there's those who are disinterested in God's grace. You know the story. Uh, don't turn. You know the story in Acts 17. Paul is coming into uh, uh, Athens and he comes into the what's called the Areopagus. He's having an uh, encounter with some, some dis- those who are just talking, discussing uh, uh, religious matters and... <clears throat> He uh, is given the chance to share what he believes about life and about uh, spiritual things. So he gives them this understanding of, uh, of the unknown uh, altar that many of them had there. And he explained who the God is of the unknown altar. You know that story. And as he's going through that, he finally gets to the uh, issue of the resurrection. And he makes a statement about the resurrection. And that just is like a switch that turns them off. 
as soon as they hear that, they just say, uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, uh, we'll think about that. Well, maybe you'll come back someday and we'll talk about it further. See you around. <laughs> just kind of blew him off. Disinterested in God's grace. And I think, that, again, that's something that happens to many of us who just uh, sometimes folks just don't want to hear the story. As soon as we talk serious with family and friends and we get into our spiritual things, they just sort of zone out. Not interested. There are those who... Uh, abuse God's grace. I'm going to read this to you because it's in Philippians chapter 1 and we'll be bouncing back and forth here in Philippians. But I wanted to read this to you in verse, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. One of our songs spoke about this, uh, uh, or at least I heard it somehow this morning. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, because it was John that said this, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am, I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Oh, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Some will uh, take grace and and twist it around for their own selfish ambition, using grace as, as a means of entrance uh, into sometimes into relationships. Sometimes a, a, a couple's getting married and uh, uh, one spouse is a committed believer and they know, and I'll say it here, if you're getting married in our church and you're a member of our church and you're getting married, we uh, are highly concerned that you're marrying a believer in Christ. We think that that's the right thing to do. So we'll interview you. And uh, counsel there. And, and uh, I have had the experience of a person in my office saying, oh, I'm a believer, and, and uh, sort of confessing Christ in my presence in the office, though not much uh, coming beyond that, but they'll make that statement, and then you'll uh, talk it through. And you find out uh, later on the, that that person wasn't saved, they aren't coming back to church, and that marriage ends up having trouble. Some use grace as a means of entrance into relationships. Others use grace as just a means of friendship, as a means of uh, opportunity, and so on. There's another way that we can abuse grace, and that is to deliberately sin without fear, without the fear of God, because we're going to say that we're under grace. Well, I, uh, grace covers my sin. Romans 6.15 says the opposite. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No, no, we don't do that. But some have taken on the theme of doing that, and the Corinthians were famous for that. Some will shame God's grace. Over in 1 Timothy, Paul mentions a, a couple of guys in chapter 1, 19 and 20. And he just says that these fellows have rejected the faith and a good conscience. We can shame God's grace when we know the truth, but we reject the truth in our life, in our choices. We make bad choices as even believers that can sometimes tarnish our conscience and pull us away from spiritual things and hurt the cause of Christ. But here's the one that struck me the most in this response of grace in vain. Some can withhold God's grace. This may be the most serious indictment that I can think of. I'm going to read uh, again. I'm going to use the Old Testament for this. It spells it out. I'm going to read just a few verses out of Ezekiel 33, and I know the context is about Israel, but the, the tone of this context is certainly applicable to us. In Exodus 33, 7 and 8, speaking about those who should be the watchmen over Israel, 
He says in verse 7, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. If we uh, translate that into New Testament thinking, obviously God's not going to judge me or condemn me to hell because I didn't tell someone else about him. But there is certainly an understanding that if I don't care to share the grace of God with others, if I don't recognize what that grace means to me and how that grace should be positively affecting me, and if I don't have some statement in my life about what it means to me, that I can share with others, then I, in essence, am condemning that person to hell. My silence, my never being concerned as a witness, is a condemnation on that person. It's assigning them to what they already are destined toward, and I'm saying that's okay with me. That is... To me, receiving grace in vain. This thing of grace that what God has done for me has and should so change us and affect us and cause us to be so uh, uh, interested in, in obviously responding in a way that honors the price tag for my life, that he would pause and see me stop and, and love me and love you. And the fact that he's done that, and so my response needs to be much more than just taking the free gift of salvation and then running off to do my own thing. And so uh, this morning he goes on in our text, I want to go back to Corinthians, he goes on in our text and he basically says to them that, uh, that we should not give offense. And down in verse uh, 3 he says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And uh, he's already said that we're workers together with him, with Christ, and we don't want our ministry to be blamed by the things that we do. <clears throat> you know, uh, Paul had, had been the one who basically had said that he didn't deserve to be an apostle. When you think about it, uh, if uh, somebody is uh, living a life that's just a torrid, sinful life, and uh, well-known in the community, and then they find Christ and get saved and come to your church, it's probably not going to happen that the next day that person's going to come and say, you know what, uh, I, 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 I think I'd like to be an apostle. I, I, I would like to be an apostle and serve Jesus in this way. How do I do that? <laughs> I, I, I think that the church would be, uh, well, wait a minute now, you, we know what you've been. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's possible for us to, to understand what's happened to you and believe it. Uh, and this morning, you and I all know that grace is a miraculous thing that changes our lives. And thank goodness for grace. And so it's not something that where we can say, uh, I've arrived or I've made it or I'm, I'm all, all okay now. And, and it's because of what I'm, I made a decision to be a Christian, therefore I'm okay. This thing of grace is something that is unexplainable. And it's something that only God can do. So Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, 
that he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's his grace to me, which is not without effect. So grace changes us. If you have truly experienced grace, it has to have had some effect in your life that has caused some changes in your life. Pastor Ray Ortland uh, wrote this. He said, God's grace is great enough and powerful enough to reach deep into your soul and remove everything that would weaken you and or disqualify you from finishing gloriously. I want to just uh, challenge some of you. There are some here today that I know you struggle, you you say to yourself that I, I'm, just, I'm just not very good as a Christian. I, I fail too often. I'm up and down. I, uh, my faith is good one day, and the next day it's really weak. Uh, I, I have temptations that I sometimes uh, give in to and so on. And I just want to remind you today, don't allow anything, and including the fact that some of us make ourselves a prisoner of our own memories, of past sin. Don't allow anything to keep you from being Christ's present instrument today. Don't let the lie of Satan tell you that you can't be used by God. So what is our ministry? Paul writes here that I don't want to give an offense in anything that our ministry may be blamed. What, what is the ministry that he's talking about? And, and I believe this refers to anyone's individual service. I mean, something that you do that you know you do for Jesus Christ, whatever it might be. And it could be uh, many different things, hundreds of things we could be doing for Christ. Uh, and so we don't want to tarnish anything we do in Christ's name by how we live our life and how we respond to grace. But it also has to do with the church itself. The, the church of Jesus Christ takes the brunt, oftentimes, of those who poorly represent Christ. So if you do something that tarnishes the testimony that you have and of Christ, it's so common for someone to see you that knows you and they know they're going to respond and say, well, that person goes to that church and therefore that church is like that person. You do know that it happens. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have labeled someone else like that. It's not unusual for us to do that. We, we uh, sort of you know, evaluate who a person is or where they go to church, and we evaluate the two based on what we know, the person that we know oftentimes. So in verse 4, Paul comes back and says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Now, when he says that, I, I find myself uh, ooh, uh, you know, uh, commending ourselves is sometimes can come across so, uh, so uh, uh, prideful. You know, politicians commend themselves. And uh, we, we, uh, we struggle with that. We, we don't believe half of what we hear sometimes. But some of us here have probably written a resume. Have you written a resume? Uh, if you've written a resume about yourself, can I, can I just be flat out honest and tell you that you probably inflated yourself a whole lot? To get that job, you want to make yourself look pretty good. You're not going to say all the dark, negative things about yourself. Well, I'm a failure. <laughs> uh, I don't keep promises. Uh, I'm a slob. Uh, I mean, you're not going to list all those other things. You're going to tell how good you are, how successful you are, how intelligent you are. 
your, your great experiences, and you're going to th- you know, try to find some. Then you write them down. And as you go through that and design that resume, you're trying to sell yourself to someone else that you are worthwhile, right? So when Paul says we commend ourselves as ministers of God, what he's really doing here is he's validifying who he is and who his team is in the eyes of these Corinthians and certainly for us today. Now, some people, like I said, will oversell themselves. Some will undersell themselves because it's tough sometimes for some of us to write a resume. Uh, I've read a few pastors' resumes, and I can tell you uh, oftentimes I'm very disappointed in what I read. Uh, and sometimes it's better sometimes. And I'll find uh, someone who's very humble, and they'll undersell themselves. They won't say a whole lot. Then you've got to probe and find out and so on. I'm not sure which is better, but obviously that happens. And here Paul's just saying, we commend ourselves as ministers. And it's a bold statement to say that. But on the other hand, we do want to validate who we are, you know, what, we, what we do, what we stand for. We, we want that to happen. If, if you're a business owner here today or if you, uh, if you work for a company, if, uh, if you just work for yourself, it doesn't make any difference. You want to be recognized as being significant in what you do. And certainly you want to be recognized as successful in what you do. I hope. But I ask the question, what about your service for Christ? How would we, you and I, commend ourselves in terms of discipleship and service for Christ? How would we do that? So Paul gives a list here of how to uh, obviously do that, to to validate. uh, And he has sort of a three-point outline here. Where validation occurs how validation is acquired, and then how validation is viewed. And it's not the list we would expect. So let's read this through. He starts off, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And he begins this list. In much patience, tribulations, in needs, in distresses. Wait wait, wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute, Paul. Uh, if you're going to validate yourself wouldn't you first want to talk about your successes? I mean, you do have some, right? If I'm going to read here about your worthwhile as a servant of God, I want to know what you've done that's been successful. Paul is not wanting deliberately to talk about, look what I've accomplished. Uh, So it's not from success. It's obviously not from notoriety. He's not saying, look what others are saying about me. Because oftentimes that goes in our resume. It's not about prestige. It's not uh, him saying, look at who I am. Because he could certainly do that. No, it's, it's uh, and can I just say this? Uh, there's, there's a fine line between being Christian, and I'm going to use a word that's not in the dictionary, and Christianese. Okay? There's a difference between being Christian and Christianese, that's my word. I tried to find it, can't find it. It, does, it isn't out there, so I don't even know if I spelled it right, but I have it in my notes. The latter, in my mind, is what some Christian headliners are telling us. Christianese says uh, there's things like easy believism. Just, just make a decision to follow Jesus, and you're in. That's it. It's easy. Uh, there's those who believe in Christian Club Med. 
Those believers who are zipping all over the world, enjoying life and uh, sipping a martini and uh, tipping a wine and on a cruise all the time. Some of you take cruises, don't. I'm not talking about you. It's okay to take a cruise once in a while. But some are just you know, living, living the good life. And uh, that, that's how they perceive that that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's Christianese, I think. Some are into social gospel stuff. Now, I have a different term for that. It's called feel-good-about-yourself gospel. Doing stuff to make you feel good, uh, to compensate for what you're not doing right. Uh, there are those who are selling be successful gospel, uh, be healthy gospel, uh, be free from conscience gospel. There's all kinds of different multiple choices out there for that. And so Paul is going to give us, no, that's not how you validate Christianity. Uh, and all those things are, are what are thrown out at us in a culture we live in today, especially in North America. This is what we're often hearing and seeing that should identify those who are following Jesus. That life's great and good and there are no problems and there's no sickness and there's no troubles. and Just all this stuff that we hear about. And look what Paul says. No, wait a minute now. If I'm going to validate myself, here's what's going on in my resume. Validation occurs in much patience. Not once in a while patience, but much patience. In tribulations, in needs. You know, in uh, Philippians 4, 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, give your request to God. Uh, uh, Obviously, uh, needs are are things that we have, uh, and, and needs are going to be there. But obviously, we're told by Paul as well that, yes, we have tremendous needs, but we don't sit around being sort of full of anxiousness about them. In distresses, he says. In stripes. Well, well, Paul, wait a minute. Now, how does that validate you? In stripes. I want you to go two pages or one page over to uh, chapter 11. And just he uh, intensifies that in his testimony. Uh, In verse 23 of chapter 11, he's talking about being a minister of Christ here. And he says, I speak as a fool, I am more. Uh, in, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times, 39 lashes. Uh, once I was stoned, or three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a deep, uh, a night and a day. I've been in the deep, in journeys, often in perils, and so on. Just, just, just uh, you know that that's my discipleship life. It's it's just kind of normal. And you and I go. I, I don't want that. He says, in imprisonments, in tumults, back to our text, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. I was thinking about that uh, statement in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, talking about, in the faith chapter, talking about all those who were faithful and suffered in some way for Christ. And it says in uh, verse 39 of that, that all these who had suffered, uh, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. In other words, Christians are validated by their faith while having nothing else by which to showcase their Christianity. 
you're not going to be and you should not be impressed by my Christianity and how I dress or how I look or how I think I'm intelligent sometimes. I mean, we measure all that stuff. Uh, you know, obviously uh, today the whole thing is that how you look and how you dress and how you act and how you program and how you uh, uh, present uh, and package church to people. It's, it's all the uh, flash and pizzazz and attraction because you're trying to catch people's intrigue and interest in who you are and what you have to talk about. And so it seems like the competition to do that is the, is the thing today. It's, it's, it's so bizarre and so beyond. And I don't care if you have like a mega church or a very small church. You go on YouTube and look at all these different services and, and even look at us sometimes. I think sometimes that we get so caught up in that. We're so concerned that uh, someone will listen to what we have to say, so we try to sort of steer things and, and uh, obviously dress things up in a certain way that will be attractive. Here's Paul saying, you want to validate genuine grace and, and Christianity? It's, it's in these things. Patience, tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, fastings. That doesn't attract anyone. Or does it? Because we have to somehow work through looking past the facade. We have to, we have to somehow figure out how we can look uh, beyond uh, the, the superficial and look deep into the hearts of one another and say, what is this Christian life all about? And here in North America, you know, you don't see too much. But we could say patience could be something we could all uh, identify with. And many of you have tribulations of different kinds, and you know that. You're struggling with some of that stuff. We don't always talk about it. Uh, some of you have great needs. I've had a few of you share with me. You've got some tremendous needs coming in your life, and so we know that. Distress is something we all understand in many different ways. Well, we haven't, been, we haven't had stripes, and you haven't been in prison for your faith yet, but some of our brothers and sisters have. Tumults, labors. Some of you can't sleep, and so on. So there's some things we can identify with here, but I am truly challenged by this. This is where validation actually occurs. Paul's saying, you want, you want to know who we are and how we can commend ourselves? This is how. How is validation acquired? Then he changes the tone here. How is it acquired? Verses 6 through 8. He says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Uh, he says, by, by purity. And, you know, you and I know that how is validation acquired? First of all, by purity. Uh, Peter tells us in chapter 1 of First Peter, be holy in all your conduct. So we know that that's very critical for us. He says, by knowledge. Uh, uh, if you uh, turn to, you don't have to, but you can look Ephesians or write it down. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, as Paul says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know him. It's a... It's a prayer and a process, asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's going back to the, uh, 
It's going back to that thing of grace. Grace didn't just save me. Grace is offered every day to me to have this opportunity to know more of him. That you may know him, he says. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, depth, width, love of the, talking about the love of God, that you may comprehend that in your life. I want to comprehend that because that goes back to this thing of grace. I want to try to understand why he loves me. Don't you? Why does he? And you know what? There's, there's no human answer. It's just that he chose to. And that's the mystery of grace. It's un- unbelievable. By knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who's, by the way, been given to us, lives within us. Ephesians chapter 1. He lives within us. He's taken residence in us. He says, by sincere love. Validation is acquired by sincere love. That is uh, Romans 12, 9. Love that's without hypocrisy. That kind of love. It validates that we are servants, workers in the grace of God with him. Uh, by, the, uh, by the word of truth, he says. Psalm 119, go through all that. By the power of God. Uh, Ephesians 3.20 says, the power that works in us. It, it's the Spirit of God then who dwells in us and his power available to us. And it's by the power of God in us that we learn how to acquire this idea of validation of who we are. By the armor of righteousness. I pulled this out of my head uh, as an illustration, but I had this picture in Exodus chapter 17 of, of Moses uh, overseeing the battle. Joshua is down fighting the battle, and he has Aaron and her on each side holding his arms up as he's praying. Uh, the word says as long as his arms were up, extended, showing the uh, dependence on God for the battle, the battle was being won. But as soon as his arms wearied and came down, the battle shifted to the enemy. And it's a, a great reminder to us that uh, you and I need something more than we are to get us through the day and fight through the battles of life and to sort of remain in that sense of being uh, validated as someone who is a, a worker for Jesus who has responded to his grace. And I can't do that by myself. Uh, that's why uh, uh, the illustration of a husband and a wife, a wife is to help support her husband. Uh, dear wives, you have the power to uh, help enable your husband to hold his hands up as he's praying through life to, to stay pure. And dear husband, you certainly have the strength to help your wife hold her arms up while she's going through her day to sort of stay faithful to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our kids who need husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, holding their arms up on behalf of their kids as they leave the house and go to school and try to stand their ground. They need, we need that help from all of us around. And that has to come from a righteous position, not a fleshly position. And so when we understand that, Ephesians 6, 13, where Paul has tried to tell the, uh, those believers again about this idea of wearing the proper armor. And so he tells all of us in uh, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand or to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The odds against us are incredible. 
We, we have this uh, blurred vision that as we step out of our door in the day that we have our agenda set, our life sort of in, in hand, and we know what we're going to do, and we don't even consider the, the enemies all around us, and they're not always seen enemies, but they are there intent on destroying us. And so obviously we all need prayer for that. So validation is acquired by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, kindness, Holy Spirit, sincere love, Paul says. The word of truth, the power of God is necessary, and by the armor of righteousness. So verse 13, he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Then he says, interestingly enough, he, he moves to something very, very different here in our text. i got to go back to it, but he says this idea of by honor and by dishonor, he says. Validation comes by honor and dishonor. Verse 8. You think about it. Jesus was stripped naked. He was crucified as an evildoer. He was dishonored by the supposed righteous crowd who spat on him and mocked him and held their ground that he was the one who, was, who, who had blasphemed against God when and it was them, of course. And yet we know him. He was innocent. He was and is God. And we're told in Hebrews that he endured the cross, despising the shame and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after this. Honor and dishonor. Some are going to honor us for understanding our response to grace. Others are going to dishonor us because we're not in their camp. We don't think like they do. We are different, strange. Uh, uh, they might give other labels to us, but there's always going to be the two sides that, that we have to deal with in our life. That, that comes with the package of following Jesus Christ. Then he adds another, uh, uh, another idea here. Validation is acquired by evil report and good report, he says. Evil report and good report. If I can, I'm going to read this to you, but it's in John 7. It's something Jesus said about himself. And uh, it's appropriate uh, for me to do that this morning. Let me read this to you. John chapter 7, verse 12. He makes this statement. And he's not John's one that said it, but it came from Jesus. Actually, I'm going to read, let me read the context here, verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and, he sa- and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, well, he is good. Others said, no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Finally, Jesus comes. And Jesus says, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his, his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He's uh, always had to defend himself. And there's always this crowd that is giving an evil report of him, twisting words and 
making accusations. And then there's the crowd that has a good report who have had a personal experience with it. I can tell you that I can only give a good report because I know how sinful I was and I know what he's done for me and it's that grace in my life that causes me again to say I know who I was but for the grace of God. Going back to what Paul said, but for the grace of God I am what I am. Aren't you thankful this morning for God's grace that has effectively approached you, uh, you've been allowed to see his grace and respond to his grace and his grace is living in your life today and the blessing of having his grace in our lives and yet there are going to be some who aren't going to believe you, uh, who are going to say, well, I know who you are in another, another place or in another time and they're not going to believe if you had changes in your life. Peter uh, reminds us in his letter in chapter 4 of his first letter, for if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Now, uh, as uh, Paul uh, is making these statements uh, about validation, then he comes to how validation is viewed. So we have, we have you know, this idea that, okay, this is uh, how validation occurs or happens. Here's how validation is acquired, but here's how validation is often viewed, verses 8 through 10. He switches his uh, lead in as deceivers. That's how we're seen, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things, as deceivers and yet true. He, he's uh, obviously, uh, 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 there are many uh, scenarios where we could sort of see this. Jesus, of course, was called that, but... Uh, Here's Paul who said about himself in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Paul said this about himself. I suffer trouble as an evildoer. In other words, I'm accused as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. So, you know, there are many who are locked up, our uh, different brothers and sisters around the world, especially in different countries where Christianity is not legal, Many are locked up and obviously uh, uh, called deceivers, called all kinds of things, uh, telling lies to people and political, political insurgents and so on. And we know that that's not true. What's true is that they are true in terms of their life and their testimony. As deceivers and yet true. As unknown and yet well known. You know, the world doesn't give a hoot about who you are really. So as famous as some people are, uh, it's always, uh, I don't look very often, but sometimes I'll see a name pop up on YouTube, somebody that has always been famous, maybe somebody in my past life that I knew about, and then you kind of try and track them today, and you know, once we get done with what it is that we've done to uh, exhilarate people, uh, if you're a performer or whatever, and you've had your day and now that day is over, then people forget. People don't care about you much anymore. And I thought it was very interesting that uh, uh, recently uh, we've we've had a couple of uh, people pass away who were stars. And it's amazing how suddenly when they pass away, everybody gets emotional, but nobody talked about this person before they died. 
it's, it's, it's just amazing how we sort of uh, go back and we, we uh, sort of review old times and we get all emotional about things, but uh, through our daily lives, no one really cares. And, and Paul's just saying, you know, that the world is not going to revere us because we have a great faith. We're not going to be held high about that very much. We might get our name mentioned somewhere in the future after we're gone, and somebody might do that, but typically that doesn't happen. But I love what Hebrews 12.1 has always said, that we are surrounded by, it says, so great a cloud of witnesses. That when you and I, uh, you know, step out of this and step into glory, I'm telling you, we are well known. And there is a crowd who will welcome you at the very crossroads of heaven as you step into glory. And there is a multitude of witnesses who even today know who you are. There are many who are praying for you, and you might not even know it. And it's amazing that as the closer we get to eternity, the more the crowd grows with this enthusiastic one-day response as we step into glory. That's why I love it when we get saved. And it says in Luke 15 that when a person finds Christ, that heaven's angels rejoice. You are known. Your name's popular in heaven. You just don't know it. Grace has done that. This validation thing. Uh, we won't have validation here, but we certainly will have it in glory. He says next, as dying, and behold, we live. Validation is viewed in those who, I believe, uh, give their lives for Christ. And uh, I think it says in Psalm 16, precious are those who die in the Lord. Uh, There's that sense of uh, those who do die in Christ. And we know that the minute I leave this body, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So guess what? When you just sort of pause and consider that, uh, when he says, as dying and behold, we live, he's speaking, first of all, in eternal things that uh, I'm, I'm never really going to die. I'm just going to step out of this into something greater. Uh, and so that's one way to look at it. But also there's that sense of dying to self, which is always in itself something that I think validates our faith. We see that those who learn how to die to self and just you know put others before them and so on are expressing uh, this uh, grace in their life that validates who they are. When you see that, that's a great sense of validation. Not somebody who's trying to impress us or show off their faith, but somebody who genuinely just has died to self and lives for Christ and for others. It's a beautiful thing. But also, uh, why would he not be saying this? Paul was stoned in Lystra. You can imagine being stoned. But he got up and walked away. So it has several meanings there. He, th- he says, as chastened and yet not killed. He's, for us, that, that's Hebrews 12. Uh, sometimes God does have to chasten us. That may happen. Validation, again, is seen in the fact that God sometimes chastens his children. Uh, but he's not, out to, he's not killing us, but he certainly does deal with us sometimes in ways that we recognize. Well, God's hands on that guy or that girl's life because he's had to deal with them in a hard way. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Doesn't it, just, uh, doesn't it do something to you when someone's always smiling and seems to be always just sort of on top of things and you know they're not going through good things? Uh, Jared's doctor, you know, uh, uh, his new doctor this week was, again, expressing his uh, amazement that someone can be joyful in the midst of uh, physical issues. They're hard. 
There's something commendable. There's something attractive about that. And so obviously that's, that's a, a critical, important thing. As poor and yet making many rich. Uh, obviously uh, our poverty is where Christ gave his grace to us. Our expression of understanding his grace in our life enables us to make others rich in what truths we now know that we can pass on to others. That, that, we want to bless other people by what Christ has done in our life. And then he says, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Isn't it great to know that we have Christ who has all things for us? Paul said, I suffer the loss of all things, but I, I, that I may gain Christ. And I trust that somehow that would be something that you and I would understand in our lives. Validation. I, uh, we commend ourselves as, uh, as those who uh, minister for God. And we don't want our ministry to be blamed in any way by how we live. And so uh, going back to that fact that we don't want to receive the grace of God in vain. I, I trust that somehow you hear and realize that Christianity is not this fluffy uh, little lifestyle that we live. It's, it's a life that's, that's tough. Jesus calls us to a, a life of following him, which may seem and is sacrificial, but obviously the end result is glory, glory that comes not here, but glory in heaven. And uh, he's worth it because of his grace. I hope that you can just leave today just saying, God, I don't understand how you love me so much. But I am concerned about how I respond to that, that truth. Help me to respond in a right way. Help me to measure that better than I am. And may it have its effect in my life. Grace has a great effect, Paul wrote. It changes us, and it ought to. And I pray that's happened to you. And God, great.